I want you to turn to the book of Zechariah, the prophet. I saw a Baritz Cadillac in, on, um, in downtown Fort Worth, Texas one Saturday afternoon. Now, here's a, here's a, in Caltown, cowboy with a big cowboy hat and a Brits Cadillac pulled up at a stop sign in downtown Fort Worth and the bumper sticker read, I'd rather be flying. Now, what could be better than to be in a Brits Cadillac, you know, in downtown Fort Worth? Well, here I am going through the prophets and everybody's telling me I should be in another one. Yeah, you going to preach from Malachi? You know, <laughs> how about Jeremiah? Hey, it's Zechariah, Loki, here tonight. And we're going to get in Zechariah. Just kidding. We're working our way through the prophet. We're going to do Malachi. We're going to do Jeremiah one of these days. But we're at Zechariah. If you can find the book of Matthew and take a left, you can find Zechariah. This is kind of an introduction to it, but... Um, We'll try to, try to uh, deal with a little bit of the text. And I want to read verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? What he's saying is, has not my word outlived the people who preached it and heard it? Overtake the fathers. Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts proposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now Zechariah was a contemporary prophet with Haggai and so I'll need not have to set the background because you're familiar with what happened in the history of Haggai I'm sure but just in case just a little review. The nation of Judah had been in exile for 70 years and in this wonderful phenomenon orchestrated by the providence of a sovereign God. Cyrus, the king of Persia, conquered the Babylonians, and he permitted the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. Ezra and Nehemiah were the two leaders leading the people back for that reconstruction work. Uh, Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of the city, and Ezra to re rebuild the temple. 
But when they got back, after about 18 years, work on the temple had ground to a, to a halt, and nothing was being done to rebuild the temple, to restore the place of God to the city of Jerusalem and to the nation of Israel. And so God sent a prophet, sent two prophets, to encourage the people to get on with the business of the reconstruction of the temple. That prophet Haggai that we've been talking about and Zechariah. And so Zechariah prophesied in 520 B.C., which absolutely means nothing to you, is of no value probably, except to set the time at a period in history that's very important. And he prophesied or encouraged the people to get on with the building of the temple. Now there are a lot of things that um, you know, have been said, bad print given to the, to the temple because in the history of the Jews, the people began to worship the temple of God rather than the God of the temple. They thought they had God shut up in a box and they started worshiping a box. And their religion, you know, is involved only or primarily that which went on in the temple. And so when Jeremiah preached, by the way, that famous temple sermon, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, he said three times. He was saying that in mockery and in derision of the people who had placed all their value and all of their commitment to the temple itself not to the God of the temple. However, Zechariah saw the temple and the reconstruction of it as a strategic part of the, the uh, prolonging of the Jewish faith because it was the center of prayer and it was the place where people gathered for those great days of the year where they celebrated God. And throughout the centuries, it was the center of the sacrificial system, the focal point of worship and repentance and atonement and the supreme place of prayer. However, when you get, begin to study the book of Zechariah, you see immediately that there is a uniqueness about this prophet. The uniqueness is twofold, I think. One is that he was both prophet and priest. Unusual in the Old Testament line of prophets that the prophet was at the same time, was at once a priest. So that there is a connection between this prophecy that he declared and this priesthood that connected the people with God. And so he is unique in that sense. The second thing that is unique about Zechariah, and I want you to nail this down in your memory, is that there is no other prophet in the Old Testament that has more to say about Messiah, not even Isaiah, than Zechariah. And he had this deep understanding and commitment to this lineage of David, and he is so much that he thought Zerubbabel the governor would be Messiah because he was of the lineage, he was the ancestry of David. But Zerubbabel the governor was not Messiah, but Zechariah was looking forward to him, and he has much to say. In fact, all of the book of Zechariah has as its underlying theme these messianic promises, the, these words that talk about the coming of Messiah. And Zechariah uh, knew that, that 
the people of Israel, the people of God, were going to have to do some repenting because Messiah wouldn't come until this instrument of God was cleansed and purified. These people of God repented. I think you'll remember, if you live long enough for Palm Sunday, we'll read that passage on, that we always read on Palm Sunday, Zechariah 9.9. This is how it goes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. And of course we recognize that as a prophecy of the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem that took place, if this was written in, five, in, in 520 B.C., it took place over 500 years later. Now, for those of us who have some problems with, uh, you know, is the, is the Bible really true and is it really accurate? I mean, you come to a passage like this of a prophecy that took place 500 years before the, before the birth of Jesus and was fulfilled exactly as he prophesied. This great prophet of, uh, of Judah, uh, Zechariah, pointing toward Messiah. Now, I want us to come back to the text I've read with that introduction and, and do some, some stuff right quick. I want you to notice in verse 5 that there are two questions. One is a question that is posed by the prophet, where are your fathers? He's talking about the patriarchs of the nation. He's talking about the people who were the fathers of the nation. Where are they? Well, they're dead. That's where they are. They're, They're in a grave somewhere. The second question was the retort of the people, in essence, to their question, where are the prophets? They're dead too. And the idea is, is that both the hearers of the word and the preachers of the word are mortal, and he's about to make the connection and the contrast between the mortal preachers and hearers and the immortal or eternal word. Well, what he's going to drive at, we're going to see a little bit, what I want to do what now, at this point in time, is, is, is he's making clear the transient, temporary nature of the preacher and the hearer. Just a few months ago, or a few weeks ago, just to remind you that I took a trip, we, we walked through this little... Um, a little gate that said Capernaum, city of Jesus. And we walk, it's a little distance, and there is this magnificent Byzantine, the remains of this magnificent Byzantine synagogue. And at this synagogue, which was built in the 14th century, on the side of this Byzantine synagogue are the remains of the synagogue of Capernaum. You can see them down under the ground where there's excavation being done. And so we're standing there in a, in a facility that was erected in the 14th century and we're looking down at the synagogue where Jesus taught. Now, 
you didn't know that Jesus didn't have uh, you know, the epistles and the book of Revelation. So he must have been teaching from the Old Testament, perhaps the book of Zechariah. It's awesome feeling to be standing at the very spot where Jesus taught and Peter and John and James and the rest of those old guys stood there or sat there and listened. And we stepped over this threshold into this ancient sanctuary over um, limestones that had been worn down by the footsteps of thousands, even millions of people over uh, 2,000 years who had been coming and going, standing there in the very spot where Jesus taught, listening to what this Word says. And the amazing thing is, is that all of the people who have been there not a single one of them, you know, of course, is still alive. It heard, you know, Jesus teach or the 14th century Byzantine, you know, priest or bishop or whatever they called him. Every one of them is gone. For there is to man a mortality that doesn't last. Every place in this church tonight, in every pew, there have been people who have sat, they're dead. And I can almost stand here and re-position re, uh, you know, uh, folks whose faces I remember, but we'll never see anymore in this life. He sat over there. I know exactly where Dennis sat. Mrs. Staten sat over there about where Larry sat every Sunday when she wasn't singing in the choir. Had to help her in the choir, by the way. She got in there. And all these people whose faces are out there, and they're all gone. I mean, they sleep with the dead because, you know, there is this temporary, transient nature that is related to us, and the preachers are gone. Uh, how many of you know anything about the history of First Baptist Church? Well, I, I, I was impressed by the folks that joined this morning. They said when they were here for a funeral not long ago, they picked up one of these history books of First Baptist Church and read about it. Most of you didn't even read it, I, I would imagine. You, you know anything about the history of this church? Uh, established over 100 years ago. No, I wasn't the pastor. Right? The guy's name was Moses Clark. And on August the 23rd, 1889, when I was reading this, I think, man, amazing. On August the 24th, 1980, I came here. On, 18, on August the 23rd, 1889, he and his wife got on a buggy, got off at Boggy Depot. That's a long journey from here to Boggy Depot in a car, much less a buggy. And they rode into the city of Durant and, and met seven people for worship. Moses Clark. Long chin whiskers, you know, guy. And there have been 15 preachers since Moses Clark. How many of you can name five of them? You know what I'm saying? And, and so there's nothing shorter than the memories of preachers. <laughs> I, uh, about, I said a, mi a million times, when I'm dead and gone, or when I'm gone and dead, about the only thing you guys will ever remember of me the day I fell off this pew, this pulpit. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. Huh? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Somebody will mention and say, y'all remember Gerald Tibble? Yeah, he's the guy that fell off the platform that night. That's all you'll remember. I, was, uh, I went back to uh, Iowa Park, Texas to preach at a, at a reunion of the Faith Baptist Church where I preached. And 
And I met with the guys in this, I was to be the preacher that morning, and I met with the deacons to pray. And this guy was my best friend, leader of my church when I was pastor there. We were having a little prayer time before we went in there, and he started praying for the service and, and said, Lord, I want you to, bre-. that's driving me, he said, Lord, I want you to bless our, our pastor, and he forgot my name. I mean, he, he was just, he just feel him struggling. He just kind of stuttered around. He said, bless our pastor who's going to speak today. I said, man, how soon we forget. I'd been gone 10 years. He forgot my name. Now, let me tell you what he's saying here. He's saying, the hearers and the preachers of the word are here and they're gone one right after another. That leads us to the second point, it's this is that even though there is mortality in the preaching or preachers and mortality in the hearers, there is eternality in the Word. And when the preachers are gone and when the hearers are gone, the Word remains. For beneath the changing is the unchanging. Now, he's not just... uh, talking about the written word. He's not talking just about the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's talking about the living word. He's talking about the personal word. He's referring to the incarnate word, the everlasting son of the Father who came upon the earth to be God's mouthpiece, to be God's utterance. He's saying that when everybody else is gone, Jesus lives. And that when everything is changed around you, He remains, and He remains the same. Jesus, yesterday, today, and forever, He lives. And that's the deepest meaning of the ancient utterance, the ancient saying, all flesh is grass, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. He lives. Therefore, we can confront change and decay that's all around us with triumph and with, with peace. Now listen to me. Since we have the abiding Word, it really doesn't matter that much who preaches it. Since we have the abiding Word, it means that we can face change however startling and revolutionary because Jesus does not change. Now change is coming. There's going to be, you know, there's change coming within our own convention, within the structures of how we've always done things. Change is coming. I mean, change is here. And uh, whether you believe it or not, I'm not going to be here forever. I mean, I, uh, I'm getting old. And there will be change, but nothing which is of Christ can perish, and nothing which is of man can be or should be enduring. The only thing that you can count on is the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ, the living Word of God. Now, what he's saying, he's saying, where are your fathers? Where are the prophets? They're all dead and gone, but this Word abides forever. Now, that leads us to point three. Point three is, how should we relate to this Word? I mean, how does it relate to this present generation? 
let me say two things and we're out of here. Of course, point two has about four points. <laughs> so let me say two plus four things, okay? What first thing? Is the way we need to relate to this word is that we need to accept it. Not just with our mind, but with our heart. Now, occasionally, uh, I, I suppose that everybody is confronted with, you know, the, the, the validity, the, ver- the veracity, the truthfulness, the integrity of this word. Is it really true? Is it really God's word? You know what I'm saying? And I don't suppose that there's anybody who would be honest would say, well, there's never been a time when I have ever doubted this is being God's word. Unique in the sense that it is God's word inspired and, 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 and authentic. And there are always questions that, you know, that come and challenges to the word. I personally don't believe that, uh, um, you know, there's any danger. And, uh, you know, I don't worry about, you know, kids you know, going off to college and, and somebody getting up, you know, and, and, and uh, challenging the Word of God. I think it can stand the challenge, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are all running scared that some heretics are teaching in Baptist college. Well, what does that matter? Because I believe that, 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 that the Word of God can endure any test any man can put on it. Uh, but I suppose that there are times when every person says to himself, if, we, if not to other people, now, how do we know for sure? Well, the fact is that somewhere down the line, a person has to make a commitment to this word by simple faith. Now, I'll quote Billy Graham. You do know him, don't you? I mean, if, if he says it, it's got to be true, Billy Graham. Billy Graham said it one, one, you know, one night in motel room or hotel room, whatever it was, he said, I decided that I was going to confront this word if it's, you know, it's God's word. He said, I got down on my knees and he said, I just said, God, from this night forward, I'm going to believe by faith. I commit my life to this, your word. I think you have to do that. You have to give your heart to it. That means a commitment. I think second thing, and I want you to forget about being so hot in here. It's hotter up here than it is out there, I promise you that. Forget about that and just give me about six minutes of undivided attention because I want to talk about the relevancy of the Word. That is, have we outgrown it? Have we outgrown this Word, this Bible? I think that we have not outgrown the Bible for three reasons. I believe it's relevant, at least relevant. We don't make it relevant, it is relevant. And it is relevant for three reasons, basically. Number one is because this Bible confronts us with ourselves. Confronts us with ourselves. And every time in the Bible where God's Word confronted a man, he came up short. And so God, there's man in in the Garden of Eden and God confronts man with a question that just strips him of all pretense. Adam, where are you? And when he confronted him with that word, that question, Adam came up short. For every time the Word of God confronts man as to where he is, he comes up short. 
When he stands before the law, he sees himself a sinner. When he stands before Christ, he sees the mercy and the love of God, but in the white light of that purity and beauty and holiness, he sees himself as falling short. These are not pretty words, but they're practical words. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Dead in trespasses and sin, dead toward God, unconscious of God following the course of his own sinful nature, decaying in in character, all of us under the wrath of God. These are not pretty words, but they're realistic ones. For all of us, when we're found by God, are short of him. And that's what the Bible does, confronts us with ourselves. And so I turn the pages of this book, and I see myself in the arrogancy of Moses. And I turn another page and I see myself in the passion of Samson and in this lustful license of David. And I see myself in the cowardice of Simon Peter and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And I see myself in the loneliness of the prodigal son who left his father's house. Have you outgrown emptiness? Have you outgrown rebellion? Have you outgrown a loneliness for God? This Bible confronts you with you. And so a missionary saw a woman sitting on the side of the road reading a Bible. And he said, well, looky here, what book are you reading? And she said, I'm not reading this book. This book is reading me. You'll never outgrow the Bible because it confronts you with you. Second, you never outgrow the Bible because the Bible confronts you with God. Now, for you to want me to know you, you've got to want me to know you. And I uh, won't know you unless you talk to me. Now, I can know a little bit about you. I can look at Mark and I can tell he runs marathons. And I can look at Andy and tell he doesn't. I can tell a little bit about you by, by, by looking at you. <laughs> right? <laughs> Just had to do it. I had to do it. I, I couldn't resist. But I won't know you unless you talk to me. In other words, you got to tell me what is in your heart. You got to tell me about your loneliness, about your despair, about your need. For you will never know somebody unless that person lets you know them, talks to you about themselves, tell you what they feel. That's why God revealed Himself here. It's because He wanted us to know Him. It wasn't enough just to know His will or the law would have been enough. It wasn't enough just to know His wisdom and power or nature would have been enough. 
It wasn't enough for us just to know about his love for beauty or the bird's song or the rose beauty would have been enough. So he, he wanted us to know him, so he spoke a word, not just this, this written word, or half the people in the world would have never been able to understand what he said. He spoke to us in his Son. So when you open this up, you confront God in Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man has seen the Father, seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the Father has revealed Him. For when you open up this book, out of the pages steps God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther called the Bible the manger on which Jesus was laid. This is what he said. Well, this is this profound statement. Just as wise men and shepherds through the eye of faith encountered God, the incarnate word, on a manger of straw. Have we, through the eyes of faith, encountered the same incarnate word in a manger of paper and print? I love it. For just as the resistance writer, the fighter once said, when I open this book, out of its pages step Jesus Christ, and I'll see you in heaven. You'll never outgrow the need for the Bible. You'll never outgrow the Bible because the Bible confronts you with God. Here's the last the one you've been praying for. You'll never outgrow your need for the Bible because the Bible confronts you with a decision. Now the Bible is not an end in itself. Learning verse after verse, young people, and you'll miss what the Bible is all about. For the purpose of the Bible is to bring you to a personal experience with Jesus Christ. Have you outgrown your need for life? Have you outgrown your need for deliverance? I tell you, there's not a problem in human experience that the Bible doesn't have a word about say, to say about. It talks to us about marriage and sexuality. It talks to us about parenting and children, and neighbors, and giving, and discipleship. So that when I confront this word, what I find is a demand for decision. I'm lonely. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth. I am in despair. Fear not. I am the first and the last. I have sorrow. I am a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. I confront temptation. I have been tempted as every man, yet without sin. I have sinned in my life. I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so when I open this word, I'm confronted with my decision concerning the ultimate what I'm going to do with Jesus Christ for my life. And so, a man by the name of John Fisher, Bishop, was about to be hung on the gallows 
And he took a New Testament with him, and as he walked to the gallows, he opened the Bible. The New Testament said, God, this will be the last time I read it. Help me to read it. And he turned to the 17th chapter of John and laid his finger on this word. This is life eternal to know that the only true God, to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And he closed the New Testament and cried, Blessed be God, that will suffice. I don't know whether you're familiar with the name of Ernie Pyle or not. Ernie Pyle, some of us old guys know him. Uh, war correspondent. And he was walking along the, the beaches of Normandy, you know, where the D-Day invasion took place 50 years ago. And he saw all these little momentous the boys had brought into battle were strewn along the, along the beach. The boys mowed down as they came across uh, Normandy Beach. Maybe, maybe he walked right past my brother. And he said, I saw in half covered in the sand a, an issued New Testament. I've got my brother's in the office. It's got a metal cover on it that you put in your pocket with a metal cover so if you get shot in the heart you're spared and he said I, I picked up that, 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 that New Testament and I started walking away with it and then for what reason I don't know I returned and I put it back where I got it and he said I thought about it a lot of times why I picked it up and why I put it back Probably the reason I put it back was because if a boy could die on a foreign beach with the Word of God, who was I to take it away from him? Let me tell you, you haven't outgrown your need for this. It's the only thing you've got to die by. And when everybody else dies, it stays. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for confronting us tonight with your word. Most of all, with your living word, who has been here from the first song to this moment, and the beautiful challenge of Sherry's song in the word that's been read and preached have we sensed your presence and we know Lord that you've come to call us to that life you want us to live now give us the courage to follow for I pray in Jesus name and for his sake I'm aware that every time I preach most of the people have already professed faith in Christ, but some of you may not have done that, and some of you may be watching on television. Would you right now invite Jesus into your life?
there's a decision to be made. And the decision has to do with what you're going to do with Jesus Christ. That's all that really counts. If you've never given your heart to Him, your life to Him, the control of your life to Him, why don't you pray and pray that prayer? Here I surrender. The kingdom of my world I give to you. Or maybe you'd like to come tonight on the basis of His leadership, His leading to, to a decision of rededication or surrender of your life to ministry or to church membership while we stand to sing. We want you to come.